St. Francis Xavier Cabrini once said, I will go anywhere and do anything in order to communicate the love of Jesus to those who do not know him or have forgotten him. Welcome to the 53rd episode of St. Dimpness Playbook, the SDP, if you want to be cool, a production of the Grexley Podcast Network. My name is Tommy. I'm a cradle Catholic, a marriage and family therapist, a husband and father of five boys, four on earth and one in heaven. Love you, Luke. And I'm here to fill the void of Catholic conversations about mental health because I want to remind us all that we are meant to bring Jesus to those who feel most forgotten by him in the midst of their pain and suffering. We like to kick it off around here with a quick refresh of our notifications. It's time for St. Dymphna's Mentions. First up, the topic of confidentiality in therapy is something on a lot of people's minds, so I thought I'd share a little bit. Most people realize that what you say in the context of therapy is confidential, and therapists are so serious about this that if someone calls to ask if we've ever heard of you, we say something along the lines of, I cannot confirm or deny that this person has ever come in for treatment. The laws about confidentiality are serious, they're taken seriously, and they have huge penalties if they aren't followed. Of course, there are limits to confidentiality and let's talk about a few of those now. One of the most common limits to confidentiality comes up when an individual in treatment becomes a danger to themselves or others. In the case of a patient who is feeling suicidal and has a plan and the intent and means to follow through on that plan, a therapist is required to have them assessed for involuntary hospitalization and must inform the receiving center, like a psychiatric emergency room, of what the person is going through. In the case of a person who is feeling homicidal, the therapist must likewise connect the person to inpatient care and has a duty to warn the individual who the thoughts of harm were directed at. I really want to underscore here that an individual doesn't go to the hospital simply because they have suicidal or homicidal thoughts, and just reporting those thoughts does not necessarily lead to a breaking of confidentiality or involuntary hospitalization. It only rises to that level if there is a plan, an intent, and means to carry out that plan. And I just say that so everyone feels more comfortable sharing their thoughts with their therapist, even if those thoughts are scary. Remember, you can always text HOME to 741-741 to get a crisis counselor on the line to help in these situations. The next most common instance where confidentiality is broken is when abuse is reasonably suspected. Therapists are mandated reporters, and reports of abuse must be sent in to the local child or adult protective services, or potentially the local police department, depending upon the setting uh, and the circumstances for the abuse. There are some other less likely scenarios, but overall, it's worth noting that what you say and do in therapy is confidential, and you shouldn't feel afraid to engage in therapy because someone might find out your innermost thoughts and emotions. As I mentioned, therapists take confidentiality very seriously and will always act in a way to protect your privacy. On to the next topic, one of the most common questions that comes my way is how to get help once we realize help is needed. And while it's different for different situations and in different locations, I thought I'd review some general guidelines for getting help. First of all, if you've decided that it's time to get help and are looking into your options for therapy, I want to say you are amazing. I'm proud of you, and I want you to hear loud and clear that reaching out for help for mental health shows strength. 
As with most healthcare issues in this country, sadly, our journey is based on our insurance situation. Let's start with private insurance. Two paths are open to you for starting to explore mental health treatment if you have private insurance. The first would be to schedule an appointment with your primary care doctor and let them know that you're interested in therapy. They'll put in a referral for you and away you go. The second option typically available in this scenario would be to call the member services number on the back of your insurance card and tell them that you're looking for therapy and hopefully they'll refer you to get started. Next up, let's take a look at what you do with government provided insurance, Medicaid across the country or Medi-Cal for folks listening here in California. Hop online and Google the name of your county and mental health access line and call the number that comes up. They will screen you and direct you to an appropriate place to get care covered by your insurance. It would be similar if you're in a situation where you don't have any insurance. Here I know it varies quite a bit from state to state, but in California, for example, you can walk into a county-run clinic without insurance and get signed up for temporary insurance with access to all the care you need while you wait for the insurance to go through. It's a real blessing. But you can definitely start in this situation by calling your county's mental health access line as well. They'll either direct you to the right place or connect you with the financial counselor to get the best insurance option available for you. There's also the option of Googling private pay therapists in your area or hopping on one of the more popular mental health apps to get matched with someone you can pay out of pocket to see. But let me just say that uh, as a rule, you aren't going to get better therapy or recover faster from your mental health experience because you pay more or see someone who only takes cash. I would suggest always starting with your insurance or your county's mental health services. And if you find you need someone who has more expertise in a certain area, you can follow that up and perhaps find a private therapist who meets that need. But I just like to underscore that someone who charges $175 an hour is not necessarily better than someone who is covered with a $15 copay or perhaps even free based on your coverage. So each episode I'm going to introduce you to a saint who can help us along our journey with mental health and wellness as Catholics. It's called Friend Request and today I'm here to introduce you to Saint Zelie Martin. Two days before Christmas in 1831 in France, Marie Azalie Zelie Guerin Martin, that was probably terrible, would go on to become one of the most famous parents in the history of the Catholic Church. Her daughter is the much-loved Saint Therese of Lisieux, but it's her experience of child loss and her reaction to that loss that drew me closer to her. Zelie was the mother to nine children in all, five daughters who would go on to find vocations as a religious sister, and four who would go on to their eternal life far too soon. Three of her children died before reaching their first birthday, and the other passed away at the age of five. The heartbreak Zelie experienced and the way she kept the faith in spite of her grief touched me so deeply in the days, weeks, and months after our son's death, and continues to touch me down to this very day. We get some of her thoughts on the heartbreak from a letter she wrote to her sister who suffered a miscarriage and felt as heartbroken as Zelie herself. This is her quote. When I had to close the eyes of my dear children and bury them, I felt deep sorrow, but I was always resigned to it. I did not regret the pains and sorrows which had, I had endured for them. Many persons said to me, it would be better for you if you would have never had them. I could not bear that kind of talk. I do not think that the sorrows and the troubles endured could possibly be compared with the eternal happiness of my children with God. Besides, they are not lost to me forever. Life is short and filled with crosses, and we shall find them again in heaven. Above all, 
It was the death of my first child that I felt more deeply the happiness of having a child in heaven. For God showed me in a noticeable way that he accepted my sacrifice. Through the intercession of my little angel, I received a very extraordinary grace. In the midst of our own heartbreak, brought on by grief and bereavement, may we strive to see things in the same way as St. Zelie Martin. We like to close out this part of the podcast with a prayer. Father in heaven, you called Louis and Zelie Martin to holiness through their married life. You gave them as mother and father to St. Therese of Lisieux. Through their intercession, we ask you to bless the married couples in our world and those preparing for marriage. Bless our children and our grandchildren. Guide us by your Holy Spirit to bear witness in our lives to the beauty of the sacrament of marriage. Guide us as a citizen to make the kind of decisions that will support family life, protect marriage, and respect the dignity of children. We make this prayer through Christ our Lord. Amen. And now you can't do therapy over Twitter, but I'm happy to take your tweets and help you explore a bit in the hopes of finding a light in the darkness. It's time for Twitter therapy. gets us started is all or nothing thinking considered a cognitive distortion and if so how is it remedied thank you so much for sending this in Courtney and let's all pray for all of us trying to work through our own cognitive distortions on the path to better mental health our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name thy kingdom come thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil amen as a therapist this is actually one of my favorite topics to talk about so i'm really excited and i will try my best not to go on for too long two of the coolest dudes in mental health history albert ellis and aaron beck laid the groundwork in their own ways for the idea of cognitive distortions cognitive behavioral therapy cbt and rational emotive behavior therapy rebt and they changed the course of therapy forever Let's allow Wikipedia to get us started on the right track. In the course of doing therapy with patients, Beck realized that they had irrational fears, thoughts, and perceptions that were automatic. Most of the time, the thoughts were biased against themselves and very erroneous. The distorted thought process led to focusing on degrading the self, amplifying minor setbacks, experiencing others' harmless comments as ill-intended, while simultaneously seeing the self as inferior. Inevitably, cognitions are reflected in their behavior with a reduced desire to care for oneself, to seek pleasure, and to give up. Oh boy, that one cuts to the heart. These distortions are ideas that we carry around in our minds, and they have a huge impact on our feelings of self-worth and thus our mental health. These are things like all-or-nothing thinking, as Courtney asked about, which we'll talk about more in a second, along with this little list of types identified by Beck et al. Overgeneralizing, like seeing a single negative event as an ongoing pattern of defeat. Filtering, dwelling only on negatives and filtering out the positives. Disqualifying the positive, like saying that positive things about us don't count or don't matter. Jumping to conclusions, including mind reading, like we can read other people's minds, but we can't. Magnification and minimization, giving greater weight to our failures than our successes. Emotional reasoning, I feel stupid, therefore I must be stupid. Making must or should statements, that's self-explanatory. Personalization and blaming, assigning personal blame 
disproportionate to the level of control a person realistically has in a given situation. Always being right. The fact that oneself has about the, their surroundings as always right, while other people's opinions and perspectives are wrongly seen. The fallacy of change, the idea that one's happiness depends on the actions of others. And the fallacy of fairness, the belief that life should be fair and anger when it isn't fair, which is all the time. And labeling and mislabeling is the last one, attributing a person's actions to his or her character instead of an attribute. Whew, that's a lot. Back to all or nothing thinking and uh, the question at hand. Psych Central helps us out. You're either successful or you're worthless. You're either smart or you're stupid. You're either a writer or you're an artist. Your life is wonderful or it's terrible. Something is right. Something is wrong. <laughs> These are examples of uh, all or nothing thinking. And boy, do I struggle with it. And I'm sure lots of you guys do too. Uh, and as to how to combat these cognitive distortions, let's stay with the article for a little bit. Yeah. Number one, separate self-worth from performance. The problem with basing how you feel about yourself on your performance is that your opinion of yourself is constantly in flux, and it's rarely positive. Even when your opinion is positive, it's still short-lived because performance changes. Instead, focus on qualities that are more firmly rooted within. For instance, focus on how you're compassionate and honest, have empathy for others, and value your family. Number two, use the word and instead of or. Instead of I'm a good person or a bad person, consider I'm a good person and a bad person. That is, I have a lot of great qualities and I do a lot of good things and sometimes I make mistakes and poor decisions. Instead of I had a great week or a terrible week, consider I had some wonderful things happen this week and some things that were difficult. Number three, focus on your positive qualities. Every night before bed, write down one thing that you did that day then uh, uh, then write down the positive quality attached to those actions. For instance, you might write, I went to work, and this shows you're hardworking and dedicated to your job. Like you don't uh, just say something like, well, you have to go to work, everyone goes to work. No, you don't, you could have stayed home. So the fact that you went to work is a positive thing, write it down and pump yourself up for it. Number four, consider all options. When you're using all or nothing thinking, you might be making decisions without all the information. For instance, my son will either play baseball or soccer is limiting. Instead, you might consider if your son is even interested in sports, what other sports he's interested in more, and activities he might enjoy instead of or together with sports. And number five, explore these questions. What are my values? How do these values fit into my thoughts, questions, and decisions? What are the pros and cons to both sides of an argument? What are the facts and what are my assumptions? What are the emotions I feel or felt? When you list an array of emotions, it's easier to see the situation isn't black and white. For instance, throughout my job interview, I felt confident, nervous, embarrassed, proud, and excited. Therefore, the interview wasn't all good or all bad. Monica is up next. I often hear people saying things like, it's your job to get your spouse to heaven. And I wonder if that idea leads some people to have unhealthy codependent marriages. Any thoughts? Thanks, Monica. Let's take a moment uh, and pray for all married people, those preparing for marriage, those in relationships, that the Holy Spirit may dwell with us and guide us along the path of holiness. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So first off, yes, it is my job to get my spouse to heaven and for my spouse to get me to heaven. But 
We can't stop there. Because as you mentioned, this could lead to people having unhealthy relationships. You can see how quickly we might believe something like, well, if it's my job to get my spouse to heaven, I need to avoid everything that isn't directly related to that task, which can lead to people avoiding friends, avoiding having free time alone, avoiding voicing concerns that might lead to arguments, etc. All of that would be unhealthy, mostly because in order to be in a healthy relationship, we have to take care of ourselves. We have to engage with friends, take time for ourselves. And yes, healthy relationships need to be ones where spouses feel comfortable engaging in arguments, disagreements, and experiences that aren't comfortable. I'd like to add on this one little piece from uh, the Spirituality of the Holy Family Institute, and that is the idea that not only is it our job to get our spouse to heaven, but perhaps more profound, God has deigned that our experience of him and his love is meant to come through our marriage, through our family, through our spouse to us. So with this in mind, it isn't that my spouse is a gift Uh, that I have to do whatever it takes to get them to heaven, even at the cost of my own well-being. But instead, this is the person who I am meant to experience God through. And they are meant to experience God in a very special way through me. When we consider that, we can more clearly see how to have a healthy relationship, or at least see the ideal that we want to strive for. And it helps us to better understand the way our spouse should be treating us which would hopefully help fight off codependency and even situations where a spouse might might treat us with disrespect, both of which are completely unacceptable. At Cordial Catholic wraps us up. Recently, our pastor and very good friend of mine was suspended for sexual abuse of at least one parishioner. It's being investigated by the CDF. Um, That's Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith for those playing at home. And we've been told that he'll either be laicized or suspended from public ministry for life. Details aren't too important. The point is you can imagine how difficult or how it's affecting the parish and the people like myself who are deeply invested as lay people in our parish ministries. I could go on, but I think it would be a great topic for the podcast. Many of us are actively seeking counseling now as if we were the victims, even though we weren't abused. Let's pray for Cordial Catholic, everyone living through similar events, for justice, for healing of the victims, for a church that protects its flock, and for peace in our hearts in the midst of this uncertainty. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray, and do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the divine power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits, who prowl throughout the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. Unfortunately, I and probably a whole bunch of those listening have lived through similar experiences. And I have something I wrote at the time that it was happening to us that I'll share to close out the podcast. Before I start, though, I want to say how awesome it is that you and the others are reaching out for help to process all the emotions that go along with a situation like this. It's such a great witness to the rest of us walking through a difficult experience like this. So please know that we'll be praying for you. Okay, here I go. We packed up the moving van and headed up the freeway, transplanting our family from Southern California to the San Francisco Bay Area. We were excited about the future, sad about what we were leaving behind, and anxious about starting a new life in a new place. One of our biggest worries was uh, if we'd be able to find a Catholic parish that felt like home. We were leaving a small and tight-knit parish taken care of by Norbertine Canons, a lovely experience we won't soon forget, and we felt like we were heading into the great unknown. We arrived at a parish that seemed like a great fit. There were a lot of young families, a friendly atmosphere, and mass times that made sense for us given our hectic life, so we breathed a sigh of relief. 
Not long after settling into the parish, however, our world was rocked. The pastor of the parish was accused of lewd conduct, arrested in an undercover sting operation, and promptly removed from his position. We were confused, angry, and hurt. This parish priest baptized our second child. And even though we knew that his behavior, uh, the behavior he was accused of, had no impact on his ability to confect the sacrament, it still left an uncomfortable feeling in the pit of our stomach. The parish was immediately split between those who were unwavering in their support, uh, exercising a level of Christian forgiveness that was beyond what we were able to muster at the time, and those who packed up and moved to another nearby option. We fell into the second category, joining a parish that was actually closer to our new home that we recently purchased. And thanks be to God, our new parish felt even more like home. Even more young families, a beautiful church built in the early 1900s, and a more beautifully traditional mass. Shortly after we were arrived, a new pastor was brought in, and he immediately took charge of the parish in a manner that inspired most of us sitting in the pews. He was the catalyst for bringing perpetual adoration to our chapel, bringing the altar rails out of the storage room and putting them back in place, and even starting the process of bringing the traditional Latin mass back once per month. Our excitement about his arrival at our parish was soon ripped away, however, as news broke in the mainstream media that he was accused of inappropriate behavior with another adult. We sat and watched as he was promptly removed by our bishop pending the investigation. As Catholics, we know our faith doesn't depend on the behavior of our priests, bishops, or even ourselves, right? But that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt when scandal comes to the one place in our lives that we expect to be scandal-free. What we're left with is a difficult journey of navigating emotions of disappointment, anger, despair, and balancing those with a call of Jesus to live a life of radical forgiveness. Sadly, my family is not the only one who has experienced such a journey. Uh, one fellow Catholic on Twitter who wished to remain anonymous shared a similar roller coaster after facing a comparable situation at her parish. The anger, this is her quote, the anger that comes with feeling you were lied to and betrayed. Did he actually care about you and others or was it a facade? She went on to share that the struggle of trying to balance these emotions with the feeling of needing to forgive was hard. I want to forgive, another quote, but I'm not ready for it. All I can do is pray for the people he hurt, pray for his soul, and that God has mercy when his time comes and never forget the good. In the end, none of us deserve mercy, none of us deserve grace, and yet someone loved us enough to die for us. As with all the various trials we face in our lives, it seems as though prayer may be the only way forward. We need to pray for ourselves that we remember the church was founded by Jesus Christ, and as he promised, the gates of hell will never prevail against it. We need to pray for ourselves to be able to open our hearts to forgiveness that God calls us to, most especially during difficult times such as these. We need to pray for our fellow parishioners that they hold tight to their faith and never stop attending Mass or leave the church because of the behavior of a priest or anyone else within the church for that matter. And we need to pray for victims associated with these types of accusations and these types of heinous acts, that they will have the support they need to push through and carry on in the face of the trauma that they've been forced into, and that they will find solace in the embrace of Jesus. And of course, we need to pray for our priests. All right, everyone, that's it for today's episode. Remember, you can email, DM, or tweet your questions and situations. If you'd like me to address them in the future, I'd be happy to keep you anonymous or not, whatever you want. Be sure to check out patreon.com slash grexley to see all the great things they've got going on over there and support the cause. Until next time, go easy on yourselves. Take care of yourselves. And if you feel like you're in a place where you can't even bring yourself to pray, don't worry. 
I'll be praying for you. And so will St. Demna. <laughs>